Romans chapter 12. Open your Bibles to Romans, the 12th chapter. As you do, we've broken these two verses down into four components that we'll look at in a moment. I had fully intended when we began this to do all four components in one week and only got the first one done the first week. And then I, finished, I intended to finish it all the second week and we only got the second one done. This is the third week and as you might guess, we're only going to do the third one this week. Um, th- this is just, we, we are at the Grand Canyon and to not enjoy the views and to not enjoy what God is doing here would be such, such a, uh, a misgiving. So I'm, I'm excited to just kind of pull the car over and enjoy the views of this really important passage, which both serves as a hinge looking back to the first 11 chapters of Romans and also a hinge that introduces the final section. Let me read the first two verses, set that in our minds, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and as a holy sacrifice, a sacrifice that's acceptable to God, which That's your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, display, show what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of my fondest memories are growing up as a child in the woods of Tennessee. I love the outdoors. I love the woods. I love being in a tree stand in the the morning and hearing the woods wake up. I love being in that same stand in the evening and listening to the night come into the woods. I love hiking and being in the streams. Did anyone see the sun rise this morning? Wow, it was amazing. I love the outdoors. My favorite memories as a child were running around outdoors. And one of the places I spent most of my time was Chickamauga Creek and its tributaries. Uh, countless, countless creeks and streams that flow into Chickamauga Creek catching crawdads, gigging frogs, hooking bluegills, avoiding water moccasins. That was the stuff of my my youth. Some of my favorite memories. But there's one feature of running around in those creeks that always intrigued me, and it still does to this day. And that was the strange, that is, the strange and odd phenomenon of tadpoles. You know what a tadpole is, don't you? Tadpoles are little fish-like creatures that have super oblong kind of bodies with long tails. Parents, one of the best things you can do in the spring is take your kids out to some pond or creek or stream and show them a tadpole and then take them back two months later and see what's there. They go through an amazing and complex process called, what is it? metamorphosis, where they change from one thing into another while remaining the same creature, right? 
It's the same entity that's a tadpole that ultimately becomes a frog. Over a few weeks for most species, and it can take up to two years in a bullfrog, these little fish-like swimmers have gills that breathe water. Then they begin developing back legs, followed by front legs. Their mouth changes, their eyes begin to bulge, and then in an incredible mystery of nature, their gills fade away and lungs grow in their thoracic cavity and they change from breathing water to breathing air. Not only that, their digestive tracts change completely from being herbivores where they eat only, excuse me, being, um, uh, uh, yeah, herbivores where they eat only, uh, you know, plants and algae to being carnivores where they eat bugs. And their digestive systems could not be the same in any other stage of their life. Metamorphosis is, and I'm quoting a dictionary here, the process of transformation from an immature form to an adult form in two or more distinct stages. Applied to people, metamorphosis is a change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or by supernatural means. Tadpoles become frogs. Caterpillars become butterflies. And when an unbeliever becomes a believer, they are a new creature. Old things pass away and new things come. Spiritual gills become lungs, digestive tracts change. Things change fundamentally and substantially. Now, similar to the process of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly or a tadpole becoming a frog, this metamorphosis is a change that's a wonder of creation, but unmatched by what happens when an unbeliever becomes a Christian. An amazing wonder that is spiritual metamorphosis takes place. A person changes. Let me say it as simply as possible, summarizing the book of Romans and certainly summarizing these two verses. Christianity changes a person. Better said, Christ changes a person. Better said, Jesus Christ is too important, too powerful, and too amazing for him to become the Lord of a person's life and that life not to become radically changed. And this change is both passive, something that happens to the person, and it's active, something that the person pursues by applying effort. The change is radical, the change is amazing, the change is dramatic, and listen, the change is unmistakably noticeable. No man passes, no woman passes from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life, from being an unbeliever pagan to being a child of God adopted by the Holy Spirit. No person goes from one stage to another without there being a noticeable and an obvious change. Go to the pond in the spring. Pick up a tadpole and show your little four-year-old that tadpole. And then go back two months later and pick up that toad and show them that toad and say, this is the same being 
but it's completely different. It's a good picture of what happens in the life of a believer because it's the exact word that we find in this passage. The word from which we get the English word metamorphosis is the Greek word we find in this passage that we are to be transformed and changed because of Christ. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise. Turn for a quick, brief moment back to Romans 6. We spent considerable time here looking at this. The first 11, chapter, 11 verses rather talk about this change. Um, we've been baptized into his death. We've changed, buried with him, raised into a newness of life. Verse 11, even so consider yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Listen to this change. Therefore, do not let sin reign be the king in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That's how every man is born. Don't be that way. And do not go on presenting the members of your body, your body itself, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Then he goes on to say, we're slaves now of the Lord, the master. Everyone's a slave. You're a slave to your sin, your lust, or you're a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you choose your master. The theme of these two verses, now back to Romans 12, the theme of these two verses is that real Christianity is radical Christianity. Normal Christianity is what we would consider radical, crazy, Jesus freak stuff. And that's normalized, transformed, biblical description of our faith. So we've broken this passage down into four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Now, please notice the term radical and the term authentic are intended to be synonymous. They're synonyms. To live a radical Christian life is to live an authentic Christian life. And to live a genuine, authentic Christian life is to live a Christianity and a life that is radical, radically different from the world. The first thing we looked at was this first component was a doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. We'll just cover these first two very briefly. A doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. Therefore, based on the first 11 chapters, therefore, I come alongside you, I parakaleo, is same word for paraclete, that's used of the Holy Spirit. I come alongside to help. I'm coming with you. I'm doing this with you, Paul says. I urge you. I admonish you. I encourage you, brethren, friends, brethren, brothers, those who are equally adopted by the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says. And I urge you by the mercies of God, and we'll say it again, the mercies of God is a surprise to me. I would expect him to say, I urge you by the grace of God. That's what he's talked about for 11 chapters. But he climaxes in chapter 11 by talking about God's mercy. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do. He says, I want to urge you, I want to motivate you by the fact that God didn't give you what you deserve. Hell, judgment, every sin being immediately paid by tragic circumstances. God's been merciful. He hasn't given us what we deserve. That should motivate, that should provide incredible motivation to change behavior, change our thinking, fight sin, pursue holiness. 
potentially lose a job, change a job, leave a home, give resources, forsake family, risk our very lives because of the mercies of God expressed in a great and a dying and in a resurrected Savior. Commitment to Christ is to be comprehensive. As we'll see, we learned it's, it's to be presenting our bodies and it's formulated by changing our thinking or our minds. In other words, theology produces our morals and our ethics. And that's all review. First component for living a radical, authentic Christian life is doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. Secondly, we looked at an intentional sacrifice for radical commitment. An intentional sacrifice for this radical commitment. He says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Spiritual service of worship spoke of coming to the temple in a proper way. Uh, the sacrifice is bringing the sacrifice to the temple. You wanted your sacrifice to be acceptable to God, not unacceptable to God. That's all Old Testament language. But Paul changes the entire metaphor here by saying, you don't come to present a sacrifice as in the Old Testament. You come as the sacrifice, the sacrifice is not something you give, leave, kill, walk away from. The sacrifice is you, and it's ongoing, it's living, and it's holy. It doesn't stop. And it happens in the sphere of presenting your bodies as this living, holy sacrifice. One writer said, our bodies are the outward organ of our will. I like that. Our body is the outward organ of our wills. And as our spiritual service of worship, our reasonable, our well-planned out, our strategized service of worshiping Christ. It's intentional, sacrificial effort for radical commitment, and the sacrifice is of who we are. Now that's going to become more into focus as we now move into our third component, and we'll spend all of our time here this morning. Number three, a rational transformation a radical transformation that's rational, thought through, well-formulated, a rational transformation for radical commitment. Now we come to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, into this world, instead, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Interesting Greek word, this word for conformed. It means to be fashioned by something into the shape or container of something else. And I was thinking about this when I looked this word up in my Greek dictionary, and I was thinking of baking. Some of you ladies and even some of you men are bakers, and you can find a mold or cake, pastries, yummy things, really yummy things. And you put the unfinished product, whether it's dough or pre-jello, what do you call that? Liquefied, unformed jello. You put that in the mold, and then it cooks or congeals, and you take the mold away, and what do you have? It's in the shape of that mold. That's the word here. Don't be shaped, conformed to what? To this world. 
1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be, here's the same word, conformed, shaped to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Don't be shaped into the world's mold. I love how J.B. Phillips in his widely known and appreciated translation of this verse puts it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. What's the mold? The mold is the world. The world is the influence on the substance that's being shaped or molded. Remember what John said? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. He says, do not love the what? The world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You either love the world and you're not loved by God, experiencing the love of God in the gospel, or... You love God. For all that's in the world, there's only three categories of sin of worldly influence. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. Also, it's desires, it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Only two choices and only two consequences or two destinations for our love, John says. We can love God, which lands us in heaven, or we can love the world, which lands us in hell. And since the object of our love is the revelation, the revealing of our eternity, John says you better make sure that you do not love the world or the things of the world. Let's break this down a little bit, back to Romans. What, what, what is this love? What is the world that that people are called to love. I want to break down with, with some friends who I've brought along to talk to us for a bit. C.S. Lewis, he said this. Everybody loves, everybody wants, everybody desires. This is really contrarian. He says, if there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good, to enjoy life, to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it, is a bad thing? If someone thinks that enjoying life is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. This idea, he's saying, in other words, that, that a Christian doesn't have any joy that, that wants to be fulfilled, just dresses in gray and hits himself in the face with the Bible all the time, that's no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards of, uh, uh, promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot even imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the ocean, at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He's saying we, we look at the pleasures of the world... It's the whole message of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? We look at the pleasures of the world and we say, this is it. This is what I want to enjoy. This will fill the capacity of my joy. 
Let's break down this question. What, what is the world? Don't be conformed to this world. Literally to this age, to this culture. Well, the Bible uses the term cosmos and, and the age and, and the world, the idea of the, of the world in which we live in different ways. It uses it in three ways. I want to break those down for you real quickly to show you what he's talking about here. First, it can refer to the physical planet, the mountains, the rivers, the trees, the beaches, the oceans. Second, the world could mean the mass of people who live on it. For God so loved the world. But third, I think what he's talking about here is the false prophecies, the false ideologies, the vain values, the empty lifestyles, the fruitless religions that exist independent of and actually in opposition to God. I brought another friend who can help us with this, who answers the question about what the world is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote this. What is the world? It must mean the organization and the mind, the outlook of mankind as it ignores God and does not recognize him as God and as it lives a life independent of God. A life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means the outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon God. It means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today who has not thought of God. No time for God. But only thinks, thinks only of this world and this life, and thinks in terms of time, and it's governed by certain instincts and desires. It's the whole outlook upon life that is exclusive of God. There's two categories of thinking Lloyd-Jones helps us with. We think according to the values of this world, or we think according to the values of God. Everything about this world, the world system, is anti-God. It functions apart from God. It's against God. I believe Satan has inaugurated a man-centered, humanistic view that runs this world and puts man at the top, puts man at the center, placing God to a lesser, subordinate role, leaving him out altogether, making him like a a genie that we can rub a lamp and he can appear whenever we want him, or a spiritual maid who we can call and comes to clean up our lives anytime they feel filthy. John says, don't love the world. Paul says, don't be conformed to it. We can say it like this. Too much candy spoils dinner, and too much world spoils eternity. A.W. Tozer said, every man must choose his world. That's really penetrating. Every man must choose his world. John Henry Jowett wrote, worldliness is a spirit, a temperament, 
an attitude of the soul. It's a gaze always horizontal and never vertical. Warren Wiersbe says, anything that you love, anything you do that keeps you from enjoying God's love and doing God's will is worldly and to be avoided. Pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> One of my favorite illustrators and preachers is Thomas Watson. He can say more in a sentence in terms of his word pictures than, than people can say in paragraphs. Listen to what he says. All the danger is when the world gets into the heart. That's the principle. Now listen to how he explains it. The water is useful for the sailing of the ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. We are to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. We can't disappear out of the world. We don't push eject. But we do deal with the world in a different way than an unbeliever would. David Brainerd, famous friend of Jonathan Edwards, the missionary to the Indians here in America. I love this little lyric he wrote. Farewell, vain world. My soul can bid adieu. My Savior taught me to abandon you. Your charms may gratify a sensual mind, but not please a soul wholly for God designed Forbear to entice, cease then my soul to call. Tis fixed through grace, my God shall be my all. What does this mean then? It means the values of what the world holds is precious. And the values the world holds is precious are all selfishly motivated things. They make us do feel better, all about us enjoying us. And finding a greater pleasure in serving, in loving, in honoring, in looking forward to the great consummation when we see God face to face. What does this deal with? This impacts everything. It deals with what we watch, what we're entertained by, what we listen to. It impacts what we wear. It influences where we go, where we avoid. It impacts what we say and how we say what we say. It defines who are to be our closest friends. It impacts our wallets. Touches what we buy, what we own, what we avoid and what we pursue. Now, I want you to attach this to the next verb because there are two verbs here in this little, little section of verse two. Do not be conformed and be transformed. See those, those verbs? Those are passive verbs in the Greek language, They're passive in English as well. It means don't let this happen to you or do let this happen to you. Do not be conformed suggests that the world must not be allowed to influence us, but be transformed implies that we allow the truth of the gospel to influence every dimension of life as regulated by the word of God. Look at the next phrase. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
But in contrast to being conformed to the world and its values, its enjoyments, its enticements, differently, be transformed. That's the word metamorphosis in the Greek. Be metamorphosized, changed. Same human, but a different person. Tadpole to a frog, a caterpillar to a butterfly. Transformed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things passed away, new things have come. Now, I chased this word around the New Testament. It's a really interesting word, metamorphosis. And uh, one place it's used that you know of well is in Matthew 17. Remember, Jesus is up at uh, Caesarea Philippi. He takes Peter, James, and John. They disappear up on the ridge. And he is metamorphosized. Matthew 17, 2. And Jesus was transfigured. That's the word we use. He experienced metamorphosis before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. Same person, different. Completely different. How can we experience this metamorphosis, this change? It's a passive. It's supposed to happen to us, but it's also something that we we participate in. How, How does this happen? He tells us right here in the verse. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Anakinosis, two words, new, kinos, again, ana, doing something new and again over and over. The word itself by definition and the tense of the Greek verb tells us that this is something that we're doing not once, not twice, but over and over and over. We can't go to a sermon, a church service, a family devotion, a conference, a retreat. We can't read a book and we renew our minds and it's done. This is ongoing. It takes a lifetime to renew your mind. Day by day, Colossians 3.10 says, we are being renewed day by day in the knowledge of God and the image of of our creator. Now, the idea that our minds, I want you to think about this. We're renewed, we're made new, how? Renewed in your mind. Don't miss this. Please focus on this phrase for a second. Christianity is fundamentally rational. It's, it's a thinking man's pursuit. Look, I love emotions. I, I teared up this morning singing, Jesus on my cross have taken. I, I, I love emotions, but they come and go and they're not always reliable He says, if you're going to be renewed day by day, there's a way to be renewed, and it's by how you think. It's what you think, which means the object of your values changes. I want you to look at a couple passages with me. 2 Peter chapter 1. Flip over there for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter talks about this. Listen to what he says. Simon Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant of the apostle Jesus, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace, two of the things we want most, grace and peace be overwhelmed, overflowing. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, how? In the 
knowledge of God and Jesus. The knowledge of God and our, our Lord, Jesus himself. So grace and peace are multiplied to you by knowing something. See the connection with the mind? You're thinking? Look at verse 3. Seeing that his, God's divine power, has given, granted to us, look at the comprehensive nature of this word, everything pertaining to life, just being alive in this world, godliness pleasing the Lord. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Where? In the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Listen to this. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by what? Lust. How do you change? You renew your mind. How do you renew your mind? You think differently. You're renewed by the knowledge of God and of Jesus. This is not just knowing more theology. It's knowing God. Ephesians, flip over here for a second. Ephesians 4. This is a verse, a passage that we keep coming back to, and, and I have a feeling as we race towards the end of Romans that we're going to find it again. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the old and the new, this metamorphosis that takes place. Now, I want you to listen to the object and the focus of the thinking of the mind as the, as the, the, the actual substance that's being changed as we're being renewed. Listen to all these thinking and mental words. Ephesians 4, 17. So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. You don't live and act like unbelievers do. In the futility of their what? Mind. Being darkened where? In their understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the what? Ignorance. See all these thinking terms? That is in them because of the hardness of their heart. That's an intellectual term. That's mission control central of who we are, the hardness of our heart. They become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then this verse. But you did not learn, listen, Christ in this way. He says the change that happens from living that way, being darkened in your understanding, being foolish, being alienated from the life of God, the, 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 the understanding being stained completely by sin, what changes that is your mind, is learning something new. And the learning has its objective to learn the person of Jesus, to learn Christ. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is where? In Jesus. Now we come that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. You're transformed, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. That's what the world is about. Desires that lie to you. This is going to satisfy you, and it never does. That you be, here's our word again, renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, 
which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Second Peter, just listen. He ends it. Second Peter 3, verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing beforehand, be on guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Don't be lured away by the world, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. Here's what, what I think Paul is saying after 11 chapters of Romans, what he's affirming in these other passages, what Peter affirms as well. You're renewed in your mind primarily by thinking right and better thoughts about Jesus. Not just about trying harder or living better. Cults can teach people to do that. This is completely different. This is being transformed by the thought of a living, dying, resurrected Savior. Now, th this doesn't happen very often, but this is kind of fun because I've got my phone here with a text from my friend, Dr. Fred Church, who uh, sent me a text because uh, when I read this quote that I'm about to read you, uh, he sent me a correct, he's a doctor, so he can correct me if he needs to. Uh, I'm going to read you what I wrote, then I'm going to read you what Fred texted me, okay? He said, imagine, not he, this is not Fred. This is something else. Imagine the immensity of the human brain, one scientist says. It has 12 to 14 billion cells. Now, Fred texted me and said, actually it has over 100 billion cells. He's a doctor, I'm going to trust him. By the way, if you ever want to correct me in the middle of the service, this is a good... Uh, <laughs> I guess this is a good way to do it. Each cell, each cell, 100 billion cells. Think about it, just, just be melted. 100 billion cells. I don't even know how many zeros that is. It's a lot. Has 10,000 or more tendrils that reach out from those 100 billion cells into neighboring cells, each of which is constantly exchanging data through the process of these chemicals called norepinephrine and serotonin that reach out and talk to each other, 100 billion cells with 10,000 tendrils each talking to each other, and no computer could ever match it. It's been compared to 100,000, excuse me, 1,000 switchboards, each big enough to serve New York City, all running at full speed at the same time, receiving, and quest receiving questions and giving out orders. And then uh, Fred says, I'm just reading this, each neuron connected to up to 10,000 other neurons passing signals to each other via as many 1,000 trillion synaptic connections. 1,000 trillion. That's even more than our debt as a country. <laughs> our brains don't miss much. All of that thinking power, all of that creative thinking power of God was put into gray matter between your ears and behind your eyeballs so that you could use that computing process to consider the greatness and the glory of Jesus
Paul said, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on these things. Is your mind set on Christ? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Be renewed by your mind, internally, externally, material, immaterial. All of you comprehensively is to be set aside for the glory of and at the disposal of Christ. Why? Because you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God where? In your body. In other words, we take our thoughts and we put them underneath the lordship of Jesus. We think about God and his presence, God and his work in and around us, our immeasurable spiritual blessings. We, we should be meditating on, thinking about those things. Now, if you're saying, where do I get that? It's in the Bible. And if you say, is this, is this the read the Bible more sermon? It is. Yes, it is. Caught. Red-handed. How can you have the mind of Christ and know the greatness of Christ and have him occupy your thinking if we don't have the data about him in our ram, in our minds? It's impossible. Turn off the radio in the car and pray, think, meditate. Think spiritually when you go to sleep, spiritual thoughts. Think of Christ when you're doing mindless tasks, when you're washing clothes, showering, ironing, downtimes at work. Don't surf the internet, surf the Bible. Listen, the only way you can change and be renewed by your mind is to fill it with the truth of Jesus from the Bible. It's the only way. Not by regulations and, and legalistic lifestyles. It's by seeing a great Savior. Learning Christ. Train your eye to be, your mind rather, to be like a compass that always points north to Jesus. I know you know this lyric. I know you know it well. We sing it all the time. Just slow down and listen to the message. Okay, slow it down. Just take the music away, slow it down. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full, look full at his wonderful face. And if you do that, there's a progression here. And the things of earth Strangely, what will happen? They'll grow dim in the light of his glory, in the light of his grace. The battle against worldliness is really the battle of our minds being occupied with the greatness of a great Savior. We're Jesus' people. We're Jesus' followers. We're Christians. Christians. He he is the reason. He is to be compared to in every affection of this world. And he's better. And if we don't believe that, we haven't looked to find it out. Try him. You compare the greatness of Jesus to any pleasure in this world, he will win. For to me, to live as Christ and dying is gain. Why? Because I get to be with him and see him. Face to face. I think of that day. 
when we'll see him. And yet it won't be a quick glance before we don't see him. If we take John's experience as any indication, he saw the resurrected Savior in Revelation 1. Quick glance on his face. Jesus said, get up. We're friends. Get up. We're friends. Turn your eyes upon him and that will renew your mind and keep you from being conformed to this world that's temporary and going to fade away. 